Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is my friend Sam Fox. Sam is a fourth-year medical student at the Yale School of Medicine. I'll let her tell us a little bit more about herself. Hi. Thanks so much for having me, Max. Uh, so, like you said, I'm a fourth-year med student, um, uh, just finishing up on my residency interviews, uh, hoping to end up in Boston next year. And uh, for the last four years, I have been working with refugee and immigrant patients, um, as well as LGBT patients, and uh, in several capacities, uh, in particular at the Yale Center for Asylum Medicine, uh, doing forensic evaluations of patients who are applying for asylum uh, at the Refugee Health Clinic at Yale, and then also doing health education at IRIS, which is the largest refugee resettlement agency in Connecticut. Uh, Prior to med school, I actually had a previous career, a very brief career as an immigration lawyer, uh, where I also primarily worked with asylum seekers and other people kind of seeking humanitarian relief at Greater Boston Legal Services and at Immigration Equality, which is the largest legal services organization that works specifically with LGBT asylum seekers, which is a very specific population. Yeah, that's pretty niche. So why don't you tell me a little bit more about the work that you've been doing specifically with your LGBTQ asylum seeker patient population? Yeah, so as far as the work that I've been doing in medical school, that has been almost exclusively research, which is what we're here to talk about. And the sort of inspiration for this research actually goes all the way back to when I used to be a lawyer. The very first case that I was primarily responsible for after law school um, was uh, an LGBT asylum seeker. She was a gay woman uh, from uh, East Africa, and uh, she was very close to my age and uh, had a very compelling case, but what really struck me about her was actually the social situation that she found herself in. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had come to the United States intending to actually end up in Canada um, because she had an aunt there that she was hoping to live with. She didn't know about this really dumb law called the Safe Third Country Agreement. Um, which actually prohibits asylum seekers from applying for asylum um, in Canada if they first arrive in the United States or vice versa. Uh, I think the original intention of the law was to increase sort of efficiency in processing of asylum seekers. But of course, people seeking asylum don't know about this law. And so this woman came to the United States because it was easier to get a student visa to enter the country um, and then planned to cross through the border and was stopped there and told that she could not enter. And so she was forced to apply for asylum in the in a country where, as you know, someone in her early twenties, she didn't know anyone, mm-hmm. and so she didn't speak much English. Uh, she was a very smart and resourceful person, but in a very unusual turn of events, she was essentially dropped on our doorstep when I was working at Greater Boston Legal Services by federal immigration agents. They don't usually do that kind of thing, but I think they were so sympathetic to her situation and knew that she didn't even know where she was going to sleep that night, um, and so. They they brought her to us. And so in addition to helping her with her case, I was also, you know, became an overnight social worker and had to find a place for her to stay, help her figure out um, where she was going to live in a more long-term capacity. And one of the things that she said to me while we were working on her case really broke my heart. And she said, can someone here adopt me? 
in addition to that, it also became clear that she faced a choice uh, between going back in the closet and taking advantage of the immigrant community from the country that she was from so that she could have a place to sleep and food to eat or striking out on her own, which really just wasn't feasible for her. So there was this irony where she had come to another country to acclaim asylum on the basis of her sexual orientation um, and be who she wanted to be. But because of the complete lack of social safety net for um, either undocumented immigrants or immigrants who haven't yet been granted asylum or refugee status, she wasn't actually able to do that. Um, And her case, uh, like most people who apply for asylum, and this was even before 2016 when resources were kind of taken away from asylum processing and put into um, border security and whatnot, um, her case took two years to even get hurt. Mm -hmm. And so that's two years where she was sort of dependent upon an immigrant community that forced her to remain um, in the closet. And so I think I, I really emotionally connected with her. You know, as a gay person myself, there was very much this sense of, you know, there but for the grace go I. And then also just seeing all the difficulties that she had to deal with on top of actually, you know, fighting her immigration case. That case really stuck with me even after we won it. Um, and I started to think more and more about the social barriers and the mental health issues that uh, LGBT asylum seekers um, have to face. And in a lot of ways, they are common to um, the issues that all immigrants or other asylum seekers face. Um, but in other ways, they're they're unique. And it would just became apparent that there wasn't a lot of research being done on that, on that topic. There are kind of a patchwork of organizations throughout the country that specifically serve LGBT asylum seekers and try to resettle them and, and give them places to live. Um, but it really is a patchwork. Um, and so a lot of people fall through the cracks. Uh, and I had this idea of creating essentially a social network website, um, kind of like OkCupid for LGBT asylum seekers or you know some kind of anonymous Facebook group where people could find each other and connect with people who were at least from their country and culture and also LGBT or at least spoke the same language, even if that wouldn't provide them with sort of... um you know, economic support, it would at least provide a community and social support, right. um, because I definitely noticed this this loneliness as well. But, you know, when I started going uh, into medical school and still thinking about this problem and this project, I realized that before trying to do some kind of intervention, it would make sense to really get a much clearer picture of... Um, what the problem is. Exactly. Or yeah. what the needs are. Yeah. So in your assessment of the sort of mental health struggles that LGBTQ asylum seekers um, are facing once they get to the United States, what, what is the picture that you ultimately end up facing as, you know, as a result of your research? Yeah. And so the, the research that we did um, was very much in line with the small amount of research that has already been done on mm-hmm. this population. So there's existing research that came out of Boston Medical Center's Refugee Health Center. Um, they did a chart review and found very high rates of PTSD, depression, and anxiety specifically. Our study uh, was an online survey, and our goal was to reach a larger population to kind of have a higher end so that we could also look for um, associations with other psychosocial factors that might predict uh, mental health morbidity. Mm-hmm. And so we used something called the Refugee Health Screener, um, which was specifically designed to be administered to refugees, um, and it's already been translated into several languages. It's not a diagnostic instrument, but in uh, studies that have been done, it is highly predictive, I think, with sensitivities and specific specificity 
80s and the 80s and 90s for... What does that mean? Sorry. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Speak by statistics. Yeah, fair enough. It's been beaten into me so much that I just sort of forget that it's... Yeah. Um, So essentially, uh, it has to do with the um, chances of being uh, falsely positive or falsely negative. Um, And so essentially, the refugee health screener is very good at accurately predicting that people who take the test and screen positive will ultimately screen positive for an actual mental health illness, specifically Mm -hmm. depression, anxiety, and PTSD. And it's also very good at identifying people who won't um, ultimately uh, be diagnosed with those illnesses if they screen negative. Mm -hmm. So essentially it's highly predictive of both screening positive, or sorry, both testing positive and testing negative based on diagnostic instruments that are administered by a clinician, which Mm -hmm. is how a diagnosis is supposed to be made. But this tool was developed as a quick screening tool when you're sorting through lots of people to decide how you're going to allocate resources and who you're going to refer to mental health services. Mm -hmm. And so what we found in our population, which was a total of 308 people um, after we threw out the uh, surveys that didn't meet inclusion criteria, because you know we, we were worried that the people who filled those out might not actually be LGBT asylum seekers or because they took the survey too quickly for, uh, in our opinion, for it to be uh, done accurately. What we found was 80% of respondents screened positive, which is a lot. And we also found, which was actually um, even more surprising to me, that of those who screened positive, about 70% of them wanted mental health services. And mm-hmm. that's a big deal because the idea that you should see a therapist is generally a very Western-specific idea, and mental health is hugely stigmatized in a lot of countries and cultures. Even here sometimes. Oh, I mean, definitely, yeah. But even even more so, it's not only stigmatized, but you also oftentimes uh, have people don't really think about it in terms of mental illness and think about it more like, well, I'm sad, or I have nightmares, but don't really kind of give it a label or seek treatment for it and just assume that it'll go away. But with our population, we actually found this really high demand for treatment and also a really high interest in other interventions that we asked about that were aimed at kind of ameliorating uh, social isolation. So this, like the idea that you had of creating a social network or sort of targeting that issue of potential loneliness or not having a support system is something that you th- you know that ultimately ends ends up being needed among this population. Yeah. Uh, well, we, I can talk about loneliness a little bit because it actually turned out to be kind of more complicated than I thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my initial thought was, all right, people are lonely, and that's that's kind of the end of the story. And there's a lot of literature on loneliness and also on the difference between objective social isolation and subjective social isolation. So objective social isolation is um, like the size of your social network, how often you actually see people, um, and subjective social isolation isolation is your actual uh, sense of, of loneliness. It's a feeling that you aren't getting enough social co- contact compared to what you want. So you can have people with huge social networks who still feel lonely, or you can have people with small social networks uh, who, um, who are satisfied. Um, and it also turns out, based on existing research, that those two things um, are 
they overlap a little bit, but they're independent predictors of mental health problems. And it also turns out that loneliness, so subjective social isolation, is a greater predictor of mental health morbidity. So people who are lonely are much more likely to be depressed. And there's even been kind of fancy research that tries to tease out cause and effect. So this is another thing we talk a lot about in the social sciences and in medicine is just because two things go together doesn't mean one thing causes the other. Mm -hmm. Causality can run in either direction. Um, But there is research being done that used kind of a time series model where they would uh, look at the same population over a five-year period at different points in time. And they found that people who were initially not depressed but were lonely were more likely to end up depressed later. Mm-hmm. Um, so that gives us a pretty good sense that um, loneliness is causing depression. And it's not just that people who are likely to be depressed are also likely to be lonely, or that if you're depressed, you're more likely to feel lonely. Right. And so all of this kind of, and, and this was borne out in our research as well. Uh, we did a multivariable analysis, which means we looked at a whole bunch of factors and put them all together and saw kind of which ones shook out as being perse- being predictive of testing positive for mental distress. Mm-hmm. And looked at kind of how much each of those factors contributed to mental distress. And what we found is if you're lonely, you're three to four times more likely to screen positive for mental distress on um, on the screener. And so it was very kind of gratifying. I mean, it was sort of depressing, but also gratifying to see that this association exists in this population. It reflected kind of what we expected to find. And on top of that, we also saw that our population was about one standard deviation more lonely than the average U.S. population. So we used a loneliness measure that is designed by um, the National Institute of Health to be scaled to U.S. population averages. And so this test had been given to a whole bunch of sort of average American adults. And so we could say definitively that our population was significantly more lonely than the average American. And so in this specific population, were you able to tease out whether, um, you know, their loneliness was more attributable to the fact that they're asylum seekers or LGBTQ or a combination of both? So we didn't look into that specifically. You know, if we had compared our population to a population that was just LGBT or just asylum seekers, that would kind of help us get at that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, one study has been done that actually did a matched comparison of LGBT asylum seekers and non-LGBT asylum seekers from the same country. And I believe also they matched based on gender. Mm-hmm. And they found that LGBT asylum seekers were more likely to have certain persecution experiences. They were more likely to be persecuted during childhood. They were more likely to experience sexual violence, um, more likely to be persecuted by one of their own family members. Mm -hmm. And they were also more likely to experience suicidal ideation. And I think also suicide attempts. There's one study that has specifically compared LGBT asylum seekers to other asylum seekers, but we would have to do something like that to kind of tease apart which of those factors might be more relevant. Gotcha. Among the the population that um, you surveyed, specifically thinking about their their hope for a better social network or better social support, what are some 
some factors that they may have felt would improve their social, yeah, their social status. Yeah, yeah. So this part of the study is a quantitative analysis, and and in that part we gave people sort of multiple um, choices, and mm-hmm. we let them say how interested they were in those options, and then um, we also have another part of the study that we're working on now, which is a quantitative, or sorry, qualitative. Um, analysis where we allowed people to just kind of say whatever was on their mind. So when it came to the quantitative analysis, we gave people a few options. One was um, joining a private Facebook group that's specific to LGBT asylum seekers. That's something that would be really easy to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's something you could even o- operationalize after the study. We have a whole bunch of emails of people who said they were interested in something. You could easily, you know, send them all a link uh, to uh, a private Facebook page and sort of create an online community there. Right. Um, we asked people if they'd be interested in participating in a anonymous website. Um, that would be kind of like this OkCupid idea where you could sign up and say, I speak this language or from this country, this is my identity, I, this mm-hmm. is where I live, and you could find people. That would require a lot more in terms of resources to, to set up. And then we also asked people about um, real life face-to-face community. So we asked people about their interest in joining an LGBT community center. Um, and then we also asked people if they'd be interested in mentoring a newcomer. So mentoring someone who's an LGBT asylum seeker who has just recently arrived and needs help, like figuring out how to use the bus and how to buy groceries and things that they had already kind of mastered. Um, And what we found was really interesting. Um, More than 50% of respondents were interested in all of the interventions, I think except for the private website where it was kind of like 45%. Um, But the most popular interventions were the ones involving in-person interaction. 80% of respondents were interested in mentoring another asylum seeker. Um, And the next most popular intervention uh, was, I think, over 60% were interested in um, the community center. And I think that makes a lot of sense because this was a survey that we administered online. And I think this subpopulation of LGBT asylum seekers um, is probably more connected than the average asylum seeker because they responded to an email, they filled out a survey, they were computer literate. Um, and I happen to know because of our sampling method, we definitely reached out to a few community organizations that only exist online. Um, we also asked people about their existing uh, friend networks and sources of social support. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people listed um, LGBT friends they made online as one of their major sources of social support. So I think this is um, a population that definitely wants more LGBT friends and LGBT community, but already has a lot of online support. Um, and so I think it's pretty obvious that people are craving a sort of real-life, in-person connection. And this is even people who live in densely populated cities like New York, um, Boston, and San Francisco, which was a large chunk of our sample. Um, Even there, there's definitely a sense that um, there's not enough community uh, to go around. And that's not even to mention, you know, the smaller proportion of our population, which were people who live in more rural areas or smaller towns who are feeling even more socially isolated. Mm -hmm. And so just thinking about the impact of social isolation on your average individual's health. You know, we already talked about depression sort of writ large, but are there sort of specifically concerning uh, health outcomes, you know, that you study or overall that 
the field is aware of that may tie back to the specific population? Yeah, definitely. So there's both both physical and mental health repercussions for loneliness. Um, we didn't ask any questions about physical health in this survey, mm-hmm. um, but there is plenty of existing research that has shown that loneliness predicts um, higher rates of cardiovascular disease. Um, I think diabetes as well. And this is, you know, and again, you always come across this problem of causation um, where, you know, is a person lonely because they're sick and they can't leave the house? But these are studies that have looked at the direction of causality. Um, And it seems pretty clear that loneliness does cause um, higher burdens of cardiovascular disease and possibly also inflammatory disease. Um, And the sort of underlying, the theory for the underlying mechanisms is this is related to kind of baseline cortisol. Right, chronic stress. Exactly. So it's the chronic stress model. Um, There may be something particularly interesting interesting going on with this population, which we didn't look into, um, which is also sort of chronic stress regarding discrimination and stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other things we asked our population was about outness. Um, and this was super interesting um, because there's also been a lot of studies um, that have come out kind of on either side when looking at LGBT Americans um, in terms of how being out affects their mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, So some studies have said that people who are out actually have better mental health outcomes, and other studies have shown um, that they do worse. Um, There are two studies that were actually done uh, by my thesis advisor that helped kind of tease out this puzzle. Um, One of the studies compared men and women and found that LGBT, or I should say, I think in this particular case, it was sexual minority men, so gay and bisexual men who were out were more likely to be depressed, um, and gay and bisexual women who were out were less likely to be depressed. Um, and, and their theory was that um, gay men are generally more subjected to public harassment and discrimination um, than gay women, and therefore it was kind of you, your stress level would go up just by virtue of being out. Um, the other study that um, that John Pachinkas was involved with was a huge study. I think it was um, over 80,000 people were ultimately surveyed in 28 European countries. And they looked at the relationship um, between outness and mental health. And they found that what mediated uh, that relationship was the level of structural stigma in the country that the person lived in. Mm -hmm. And so if you're coming from a high stigma country, um, being out uh, is more likely to result in poor mental health outcomes um, because being out will result in you experiencing more stress, whether that's stigma or discrimination or sort of outright um, harassment. Um, And we saw the same relationship in this population. We didn't tease it apart based on country of origin or gender, um, in part because we had a lot of countries of origin and we kind of assumed they were all high stigma, kind of by definition, if you're seeking asylum uh, from on one the of these countries of, on sexual orientation or gender right. identity, you're probably coming from a high stigma country. Otherwise, you wouldn't bother trying um, and you wouldn't really be granted asylum. Uh, and yeah, so we found that relationship Um I believe it was three to four times more likely to be to screen positive on the refugee health screener if you were out. Um, that was only one of only two variables that predicted increased levels um, <clears throat> of screening positive. If you had been granted asylum um, and if you had a high level of English proficiency, you were less likely to screen positive. Those mm-hmm. were the only four factors that remained relevant um, after doing a multivariable analysis and looking at all this stuff. And then we just asked people, you know, um, 
what spheres of their life they were out or not out in. And that was also super interesting. So for our population, 30% of respondents were not out to their biological family. Uh, 40% were out but not accepted, and about a quarter were out and accepted. Um, so those aren't great numbers. Right. Um, and it, a lot of it kind of seemed to reflect uh, work that's been done on LGBT Americans and Canadians, but kind of amplified. Um, you know, you also saw in this population a really low level of people saying they had religious community. Uh, 50% of respondents said they didn't have a religious community. Um over a quarter said they had a religious community but weren't out, and then um, only 12% said they were out and accepted by the religious community. So again, you see um, this tension that exists between LGBT people and religious communities that are often enormous sources of social support for immigrants. Um, and then, you know, I think the highest levels of outness and acceptance were work and school peers, where 50% of people reported being both out and accepted um, by people they worked with or people they um, went to school with. And, you know, so that's kind of encouraging. But, you know, you also have to keep in mind there's still, um, you know, a certain percentage of people, for example, who are living with their housemates and are not, are out and not accepted. And think about how stressful that would be. Right, in your so, own yeah. house. Yeah, so about 8% of respondents said they were out to their housemates but not accepted by them. Um, fortunately, 63% of people were out and accepted by their housemates. Um, so I think those statistics were really interesting um, when you think about the sort of different spheres of your life and, um, you know, there's sort of more qualitative ethnographic research that has suggested that the ability to control when you're out or not out plays a huge role in modulating um, your stress. There's a whole level of complexity that we didn't get to in this study, which is um, the means by which you have been outed, right? Mm -hmm. There's a difference between choosing to out yourself and people sort of either deciding or discovering your sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, and there's definitely a huge subset of the LGBT community that don't get to control that, whether it's because they have they're male and have particularly feminine uh, mannerisms, or they're transgender and don't like quote unquote pass. There are people who can't control whether or not they're out, and I think other research has shown that those people are reliably reliably have higher levels of um, mental distress or mental health morbidity. Gotcha. So you brought up an interesting point about sort of structural discrimination against LGBTQ individuals in different countries, and what we know so far, and you know, like this population are specifically asylum seekers in the United States, but over the past two years or so, there's been quite a shift in, I guess the term I would like to use here is government attitudes towards <laughs> LGBTQ individuals in terms of laws that are in place and meant to protect members of the LGBTQ community that are sort of under the threat of the current administration. So I'm wondering whether, you know, the people that you've had a chance to talk to, either through your advocacy work, working with volunteer and IRIS, or even through your surveys or qualitative work, whether they've expressed a sort of increased concern, um, given the shift in a 
national slash federal attitude towards LGBTQ people. Yeah, definitely. So that's something that came up in the qualitative survey that we did. Sorry, um, sit closer to the mic. Uh, so the qualitative survey survey that we did um, was very open ended. We just asked people to tell us about um, their concerns and the things that they wanted as LGBT asylum seekers. And several people brought up the new administration and brought up this feeling of being less welcome and their status being more uncertain, um, particularly uh, Latino respondents. Um, and they, they talked about this with regard to both their LGBT identity, LGBTQ identity, and also um, being an asylum seeker or a refugee. Um, they expressed concern about um, sort of decreasing levels of social support even after gaining asylum. Um, and they expressed concern that there would that funding would sort of dry up for the nonprofit organizations um, and sort of municipal and state government programs that are currently supporting them and helping them. Um, immigration equality has been posting a lot, um, as as other um, advocacy organizations have, um, about you know uh, the LGBT asylum seekers who are in the migrant caravan um, mm-hmm. and and who are you know mixed in with this population of uh, Central Americans um, and South Americans who are seeking asylum and highlighting how dangerous it is for them to be stuck. Um, on one side of the border and not being able to apply for asylum. Um, You know, the caravan was something that was sort of supposed to um, exist to protect people because um, people, asylum seekers are incredibly vulnerable, particularly when they're traveling uh, to claim asylum. And that was the whole purpose of the, of the caravan. Um, But, that kind of caravan isn't necessarily safe for LGBT individuals um, who are not able to be, quote-unquote, in the closet um, because of their gender uh, expression Mm -hmm. um, or mannerisms or whatever. Um, And so, you know, there has been documentation, I think particularly of transgender women who have been killed, um, who are seeking asylum, and then just in general, the sort of difficulties, the harassment, the discrimination um, that exists in in that group of people. So I think the sort of slowdown at the border in terms of processing asylum seekers um, has also particularly affected LGBT asylum seekers. One last thing that I wanted to touch upon is the sort of decrease in rates of asyl- asylum approval in the past few years. Has that come up in your interviews at all? Um, it hasn't. I think generally people have complained about just life in limbo mm-hmm. and the increasing length of time waiting for asylum. Um, this may also be a sort of selection effect because all of the people that I, almost all the people who, who um, filled out this survey were contacted through um, legal services organizations or other service organizations or community organizations. Um, and then so these are people who are more likely to have genuine claims and strong claims um, for uh, asylum on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, a very only a very small percentage of people who filled out my survey had been denied asylum. It was, mm-hmm. you know, less than 10%. Um, and so I think almost everybody was either waiting or had been approved. Um, and so uh, denials of asylum weren't really on people's minds. Um, and then it's also really hard to know um, 
if that percentage applies to LGBT asylum seekers in particular. The government in the United States doesn't really publish um, approval ratings per, per identity group. Yeah, and they don't even tell you how many LGBT people applied for, or how many people applied for asylum on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, in, in my thesis, I came up with a number that's basically a calculation that's done um, where you take the total number of people who have applied for asylum and you assume a certain percentage of people are LGBT, um, but there are no hard numbers. Uh, right. And they may not even be applying on the basis of being LGBT if they're coming from somewhere or they're, I don't know, running away from gun violence or... Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, although I think I think it's it's becoming more and more common. People are uh, understand now that it's it's something that is available to them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there, there's also people who are economic migrants who are not asylum seekers who may also identify as LGBT. Right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and the opportunity to learn from the work that you've been doing. Thanks so much for talking to me. I hope it wasn't too dry. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We're definitely really excited to publish these results and, and hope they result in more work being done in this area. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.